Today we are starting a new series, uh, as it was Amanda who mentioned. It's called The Genesis of God's People. And so we're looking at the first book in the Bible. Uh, in the, at Christmas we started Matthew, which was the first book of the New Testament. And today we're starting Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament. And Genesis, the word Genesis actually means beginning. And so we're, we're looking at the beginning of God's relationship with people just like you and me. And I'm excited to start this series. We're going to do it all the way through August. And so I hope you come back and, and maybe read Genesis as part of your own personal devotional life as well. Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to start with a, a really rich passage the beginning of your word, the book of Genesis. Would your Holy Spirit lead us through this text today? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, one of the most beautiful places I have ever visited is on your screen, a picture of it, and it's the Plitsvika Lakes in Croatia. Now, several years ago, my wife Monica and I, we traveled uh, with her family to Croatia, and we got to see these beautiful lakes. It's a, it's a national park in Croatia. And I wanted to show you just a few of these photos. So this is of some beautiful uh, water that's absolutely clear, and you can see all the fish just right in the water. There's some uh, sediment that filters the lake naturally, uh, and you can just see down deep the fish congregate along the edge because they want to be fed. It's a pretty good deal for them. We just looked at a picture of a 255-foot waterfall, and then there are also plank trails that you can walk along uh, throughout the park, and they run along the edges of cascading lakes. So there are 16 cascading lakes, so they, they're, they're a little higher than each other, and they, they flow down slowly through this beautiful water. It's truly a gem. It's truly a place that can bring refreshment and just awe as we admire God's creation. I think Genesis chapter 1 is meant to evoke feelings in us like looking at these pictures, like going to places like this. Genesis chapter 1 is meant to refresh us. It's meant to kind of remind us of that garden imagery, of that green imagery that, that feeds our souls. Now, I want us to remember uh, the creation story today. So we're looking at Genesis 1. And I want us to look at it through the lens of the very first audience who would have received this story in its written form. This very first audience is the, the nation of Israel, uh, the Hebrew people after they left Egypt. The author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, is a man named Moses, and he led the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and led them out of, out of Egypt, which was a fertile land. There was a Nile there. There was irrigation, a beautiful land, kind of like a garden, into the desert. He led them out into the wilderness, and so the people that were receiving this letter, this, this book, the book of Genesis, would have needed a message just like this, that God can create places full of life and vegetation and hope in the midst of a dry and arid desert. 
And he also reminded them, Moses reminded the people of God's truths as he was unpacking this passage. So not only the picture is meant to refresh them, but there are truths in the passage that we're going to look at today and try to read through that original audience. There are five simple truths that we're going to study together. But first, I want us to remember, remember a little bit more about kind of the context of this story so when, when Israel left Egypt, so when the, when the Hebrews left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea and they went to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they, they, they received the law from God. They got all the, the, the commandments, how to build uh, the, the tabernacle, how to obey God. And in fact, I believe that if you were to kind of look at that story, the very first written words of the Bible were probably the Ten Commandments. Because God is giving them a pattern for which to write the rest of Scripture. So God gives uh, Moses specifically. First, God writes the Ten Commandments down and, says, says, and then kind of directs him to write down the rest of the law that he gives him. Now, if you remember, right after Sinai, the nation of Israel, uh, God was taking them to a promised land. They go up to the edge of the promised land, and they, they, they search out the promised land, but they don't believe that God can give them this land, and they don't, they don't trust God. And so God says, okay, well, if you don't trust me, if you're going to rebel against me, you have to wander in this desert land, this wilderness, for 40 years. And so Moses very likely crafted the Pentateuch, so the law, the, the first five books of the Bible, and specifically this account when the people were walking through the wilderness wondering if God cared about them, wondering if, if, if God loved them anymore, if he would ever deliver them and take them to the promised land. And so God, here in their circumstances, reminds them, reminds them that he can make a new creation out of anything, out of, out, of, uh, out of things that are formless and void, God can make a whole universe. So let's look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25. I'm not going to read them again, uh, but we're going to look at five truths that this passage reminds us and hopefully gives us hope today, just as it gave the nation of Israel. So truth number one. In verse 1, I will read verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This, this tells us something, that our God created everything out of nothing. Now, this is a pretty significant truth. This means that the God of Christianity, the God of the nation of Israel, in those early times, that God can create ex nihilo. That's just a fancy way of saying God can create something out of nothing. Now, the Egyptians, that original culture that they just left, they believed that all of creation emerged from a watery chaos, from kind of this watery abyss, and they called that God New. So that God's name was New, and out of that watery abyss kind of came everything. Now, if you think about their culture, they lived and they died on, uh, depending on how full the Nile was of water. So it makes sense that they would kind of say, all right, the Nile thus is God. The Nile determines if we live or die. And here Moses is writing, them, writing to them and saying, no, 
this is not your God. This is not the God that you might be tempted to pray to as you're wandering in the wilderness uh, looking for streams and rivers. It might be tempting, but don't pray to that God because he's not real. He's not as powerful as our God. Our God created the Nile. Our God created everything out of nothing. The Hebrew word for to create is only ever attributed to God. Only God can truly speak something into existence. You and I, no matter how hard we might try, cannot create anything. We can form, we can fashion, we can mold, but we cannot create. And one of the things God does give to them, creating something out of nothing, is manna. You remember how God sustained the nation of Israel in the wilderness with manna? That's an example of God creating something out of nothing to give his people hope and to sustain them. Now this truth that our God can create something out of nothing is, it actually leads to one positive reason to believe in God. So we call this kind of a truth or an apologetic And the reason is that everything in existence must have a cause. This is called a fancy term called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And it's simply the idea that something can't just randomly begin without a reason. And so if you track everything back, the universe, uh, if you track uh, all 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 of life, something had to put it all in motion. And that something must be God. He is the unmoved mover. But this also applies to our lives in a, like a real and a tangible way. It, it applies to you and me and the circumstances that we're going through. See, the, the nation of Israel, they thought God was going to let them starve in the wilderness, but he took care of them. He, he created something out of nothing to care for them in their circumstances. And maybe you're going through a time when you feel discouraged when you feel like you're in a wilderness, uh, you're going through a hard time. Maybe it's your job. Your job's not going as well as you would like, either the people you work with or your job security. Maybe you're going through a health scare. Maybe you're going through grades or your grades aren't as high as you'd like them to be. Or your family is causing you issues. No matter your circumstances, God can bring hope into those circumstances. That's what verse 1 reminds us of of for our lives right now. God can help us get through anything, anything at all that we're going through. So truth number one is that our God created everything out of nothing. Come and trust your creator, God. That's the call for us today. So what's truth number two from verse 2? Truth number two is that our God is a personal God. Verse 2 says this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now as we read these verses, I think we catch a glimpse of a personal God, of a relational God, of a God that isn't far away and and standoffish, but a God that cares about us individually. So it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The word spirit here is the word ruah, and it means wind, breath, spirit. So this image we, a lot of us get is like of this cloud mass or this like smokestack kind of hovering over creation. But that's not really the right word. I listened to a message by Tim Keller this week, and he described the word as hovering as being far more personal that it's, it's the image of a bird uh, fluttering or flying over the deep. 
And we look at Deuteronomy 32, 11. It talks about an eagle hovering over its young, a kind of a mother eagle taking care of its chicklets, of its babies. Where else in the Bible, if you know your Bibles well, do you hear of the Holy Spirit taking the form of a bird? The baptism of Jesus Christ, when the, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove after Jesus came up out of the water. Well, there's good news because this same Holy Spirit that was there at the very beginning and then came and rested on Jesus, he's here with us today. And if, he, if you believe in him, he, he promises to come into our dry and desert wasteland and care for us, no matter our circumstances. This same Holy Spirit can renew you, can make you feel alive, to make you feel at home. The words formless and empty, another way of translating those, are a desert and a wasteland. I think those are the, the words that the people of Israel would have thought of as they were reading this passage. Oh, there's a God. There's a Holy Spirit who's hovering over a desert wasteland. Well, we're in a desert wasteland, and he can come, and he can help us in our circumstances. And the same truth is true for us today. See, our God is a personal God who cares about our needs. Come, come and trust our creator, God. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 25, and we're going to look at uh, three truths from this part of the text. And uh, we're not, I'm not going to read through it, but uh, the first truth is simply this, that our God is a God of order and of beauty. Now, we see this about our God, and this really describes his character several ways, three ways. And the first is that there is order and there is beauty in the words of this text, in the words of Genesis chapter 1. Now, the six days of creation, this, this chapter is really arranged as a poetic song that here uh, the people perhaps could have sung it or they would have really experienced it as a beautiful poetry. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. So our, our modern uh, poetry rhymes. Roses are red, violets are blue, but their poetry didn't do this. It used repetition. So you would repeat things over and over and over again. And it would also use parallelism. So words would kind of match each other. And we see this in the text. Some of the phrases that repeat over and over again are God saw, God called, God created, God made, God saw. God, God made it according to its kind, according to its kind. It was morning and evening. It was good. Day one, day two, day three, day four. There's lots of repetition in this passage. The words themselves are meant to move our spirits. When you think of a poem that has really moved you to your soul, this is what we're supposed to experience as we read Genesis 1. And have you ever read this passage and been like, wow, I want to worship God. I want to bend my knee. That's what the passage is supposed to do for us today. There is order and there is beauty in the words themselves. Now, second, there is order and there is beauty in the structure. So I'm going to put up a chart because we know if you want to keep people engaged, you put a chart on the screen. So I'm going to put one up there, and we're going to look at the days. 
And the first three days are really spaces that God creates, and the second three days are spaces that then God fills. So God creates spaces or realms, and then he fills those spaces or realms. So I hope you'll see this and that you take this home and and kind of read it through yourself so that you can see it. So on the first day, God creates light. He creates light. That's verse 3. And then on the fourth day, so the fourth day is the corresponding day, the matching day, he fills that light space. He fills it with the sun, with the moon, and with the stars. So we see a space, and then we see God filling the space. And this is going to be available online, so you don't have to race to write it all down now. On day two, we see God creating the oceans and the sky. And then on the fifth day, so that corresponding day, God fills the oceans and the sky. He fills them with birds and he fills them with fish. And then on day three, God creates land and vegetation. And then on day six, he fills that land and vegetation with animals and with people, with men and women. So there is an order, there's a structure to Genesis chapter 1. There is a beauty about it, and its words, and its pattern. It's meant to move our hearts. And we're going to come back to a little bit more of what this means in a little bit. But there's one more way that there is beauty in the account. Uh, there is order and there is beauty in, in, in how, it, how God describes it. So when God saw that it was good, he's really saying God saw that it was beautiful. The, there's a, there's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was written about 100 to 300 years before Jesus. And they use the word kalos. Kalos is meant to evoke beauty in the heart. It means beautiful, attractive, lovely, good. See, God looks at his creation and says, wow, look at what I have made. It is beautiful. It is attractive. It's meant to, so if you look, think of a painting that you love or a sculpture that you love, when God looks at his creation, he says, wow, this is amazing. See, this is meant to encourage the people of Israel as they go throughout their journey, as they struggle to go to the promised land, as they doubt if they really have a future. See, this applies to them because they are going through chaos. Their life is in shambles. And God is reminding them, I bring order. I bring beauty. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I can bring order and beauty to a dry and desert wasteland. That's the kind of God that we believe in. This applies to us today. If your life feels like chaos, if your life feels out of control, like marbles that are just spreading everywhere, well, there's a God, the God of Christianity, Jesus Christ, who can change your disorder into order and beauty the harder that we cling to the chaos, the worse it'll get. And second, if we know people that have uh, trouble that are going through order and chaos in their own lives, well, we should extend them grace because we believe in a God who comes into our life and, and changes it and transforms us from old creations into new. And finally, this also tells us something interesting, that God is not a God of chance. 
Our God is not a God of natural selection or survival of the fittest. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't apply to nature, but especially when he's talking about people, God cares about people. God doesn't prioritize the fittest of us, the strongest of us. God cares for the weak and the broken. Those who go through chaos, God cares about those people. When life breaks down, God says, I can build it back up because I'm a creator. No matter how bad your circumstances, I can, I can speak something new into it. So truth number three is that our God is a God of order and of beauty. Come and trust your creator, God. Truth number four is this. Our God is the only true God. Now, there are not a plurality of gods or ways to God. There is only one way to God. We, that's what we believe here at Cornerstone. That's what I believe. And then the nation of Israel would have been battling against this in their own belief system. See, they were coming out of Egypt. And if there's anything you know about Egypt is that there were a lot of gods. God of the Niles, frogs, everything, alligators. There was all sorts of gods. And Moses is saying, well, don't believe in those gods. Don't don't put your trust in those gods. Believe in the God who created everything, who made everything. And so he doesn't want them to get confused. And I'm going to take us back to that chart for a moment. I want us to go back to the structure because this is actually telling us something about God and that there is only one true God. So all throughout the Bible, we read of God and covenants. So the word covenant is used all throughout the Bible, and it's kind of a tricky term, uh, but really what it means is a promise. It's a promise between God and his people. And we see that there were other nations at the time of Israel that also had covenants, and it was between kings and kind of their subjects. They're what you could call it vassals. And in this format, we actually see not only spaces being filled, but we also see something else. We see kingdoms being filled with kings. So we see God setting up a kingdom and then appointing kind of rulers for those kingdoms. We see the sun, the moon, the stars, they are ruled by light. Or the sun, the moon, and stars, they rule light. We see birds, fish, uh, they rule the sky, the water. And we see animals and man, they, they rule land and vegetation. So this is kind of an ancient pattern that we're looking at thousands of years later. But this would have been true to their historical context. And what do we see on the seventh day? So we didn't read the seventh day today, but if it's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God rests. And so what is God doing well, we see the king of kings setting himself up to rule over all of creation. This is what the seventh day is. God says, yes, I might set up rulers in their kingdoms, but I am the king of kings who rules over everything. And the cool thing is we're going to get into this next week. We're not going to look at it today, but God invites men and women, to come and to join him in that seventh day. In other words, he's inviting people like you and me to, become, to come and rule, to come and be kings and queens in his creation account, to rule over all of that, to rule over all the days. So our God is the only true God. Come and trust your creator, God. This leads us to the final truth that we're looking to at from our passage. Truth number five, our God doesn't tell us everything. 
our God doesn't tell us everything, and that's, that's okay. See, in Genesis chapter 1, God tells the nation of Israel, he tells them the important things. He says, there's a God, and I am he. I rule over everything, and you can trust me. You can put your faith on me. But he doesn't say, I'm going to tell you everything in order to win your trust. Really, God is posing a question to Israel. He's saying, do I have to tell you everything? Do I have to tell you how everything began and how everything will go forward in order for you to trust me? God doesn't give Israel a a detailed record of the past. He doesn't give them a detailed record of the future. Instead, God invites Moses' people, the people of Israel, to trust him no matter what they're going through, no matter their circumstances. He says, come and trust me. So the same question applies to you and me today. Does God have to tell us everything in order for us to trust him? Does God have to tell you why you're going through the hardship that you're experiencing right now for you to love him, for you to trust him? Does he have to answer all of your questions about why do bad things happen to good people? Why do circumstances take place in order for you to love him? They shouldn't have to. He says, come, trust me, I'm worth it, I'm good. I can take any sort of old creation and make it into something new. There's another question here. Does God need us to tell, uh, does God need to tell us about himself and actually about how the world began for us to trust him? In other words, do we need to know the age of the earth in order to love God? I actually don't think the Bible anywhere in it says how old the earth is. It doesn't tell us whether it's 4,000 years old or 4 billion years old. It doesn't matter because we believe in the same God who created everything, who spoke it all into existence. And this is kind of a challenging thing. But are you willing to trust him even if we don't know all the details? I don't think the Bible actually tells us if these are literal 24-hour days seven-day week, or if they're somehow symbolic. It is poetic, and it uses analogies. And ultimately, Genesis chapter 1 is from God's view. I know this because no one was there at the beginning. It says God saw, God commanded, God created, God said. It's God's view. And whenever we try to put ourselves in God's shoes to look through his eyes, We're going to get confused. We're going to come up with things that might not be true. Genesis chapter 1 is is a little bit like the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation uh, is a vision. It's a vision of of God and his kingdom and, and Christ's final return. And it is highly symbolic and it's highly, highly challenging and it's controversial. But we know that Genesis is like Revelation because if you read the very end of of Revelation, it talks about a tree of life. It talks about there being no sun, but there's still light. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. The book of Revelation is a reminder that we don't need to know everything. We just need to remember that, that we can trust God no matter our circumstances, no matter those big questions that we really can't have answered. And that's the same truth that's in Genesis chapter 1 right here. Now, it is okay to disagree with me on this. I am fine with that. 
I want Cornerstone, uh, that we're a new church. I want us to be a church that extends grace and love to each other. Even if we disagree over passages in the Bible, we can, we can challenge each other and we can search for God's truth. That's okay. Because these are really difficult passages. And ultimately, we're looking at God's word and we're saying, God, would you help us understand this? Because it's hard. It's really hard. But the, tr- the truth is still the same no matter what. It's that our God doesn't tell us everything, and, and it's okay. God is still worth trusting. Come and trust your creator, God. See, God reveals what really matters. God reveals himself. Genesis chapter 1 is a revelation. In other words, it's, a, it's kind of a pulling back of the curtain to say, here is God See him. Don't don't focus on those other things. Focus on God and how great and how good he is. But even then, it's not a full picture. We get this glimpse of perhaps God the Father creating everything and the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. But we don't get the full picture of uh, the Trinity. The Trinity means one God in three persons. And so we have to look to the rest of the story. We just studied Matthew, and we studied the series called Meeting Jesus in Matthew. So we believe that ultimately Jesus is God. Jesus is God come in the flesh, and Jesus is that ultimate pulling back of the curtain. And there we see God for who he is, and it's Jesus Christ in the flesh, the third person of the Trinity. And the cool thing is that the story of Jesus connects us back to Genesis chapter 1. I know this because Keller was preaching, and I listened to a message, and he gives us this quote that really helps us understand. He says, the maker had to be unmade so that we could be remade. The maker had to be unmade so that we could be remade. See, Jesus came to restore what we lose. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in the next couple weeks, and we're going to hear about the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is People uh, returning to their sin, people falling into sin, people disobeying God, all of creation falling into chaos and disorder because we didn't put our faith in God, because we didn't trust him. And we see that in the story of Adam and Eve. And so God has to send his son to rescue us. And when he does that, he becomes unmade. He is the maker who becomes unmade for us. And he does this all on the cross. Each week, I like to point to the cross and remind us of how significant it is, how important, because everything depends on it. See, on the cross, Jesus became nothing. Jesus became a formless and empty. He became a wasteland. He became a desert so that we could have eternal life, so that we could one day enter into that Revelation garden. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed his personhood, who he is, so that you and I could know him, so that we could have the person of the Holy Spirit come and dwell in our lives if we trust in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus suffered chaos. He suffered disorder so that you and I, so that we could taste beauty forever. On the cross, Jesus took on the false gods of the world. He took on sin, he took on death, and he won. On the cross, Jesus unraveled that great mystery of how sinners, imperfect and stained, can stand in the presence of a holy God. It's because we're forgiven. We're forgiven by the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice. If you don't know Jesus... 
I encourage you to come talk with me. Talk to any of the worship team after the service. We'd love to introduce you to him because he has given the ultimate, he has made the ultimate sacrifice himself so that we can know him and so that we can one day return to this eternal garden. Come and trust your creator, God. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Genesis. It's certainly challenging, but we ask that it would challenge our hearts in the right way and that we would be moved to worship you more and more. I lift up the offering, God. Would you bless it and uh, multiply it and uh, meet all of our needs as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.